His son had suffered a nervous breakdown and committed himself to an asylum. This was going to be awkward. And I want to say, I'm an alcoholic, but I also really want to be honest. I don't know if I'm an alcoholic and I don't want to say I'm an alcoholic if I don't think I'm an alcoholic. And I also know everyone there, they've heard that before. Hey there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. New episodes are released on Fridays, and we are in the middle of season number three, dedicated to Grit Talks and the Best Of. And today we have got two stories from the Mental Health Happyish Hour, a virtual open mic that started in the fall of 2020. It is still going strong. Would love to see you there if you ever want to tell a story or listen to some stories. Today we've got two stories, one from Mr. James Peterson up in Chicago, Illinois, and the second from me. Mr. Sean Wellington right here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including this Sunday's 99-second story slam and the following Sunday, Deja True 4. And if you could help us out, do us a little favor, rate and review this podcast if you listen on Apple. It helps people find it, and we really want people to find it. Thank you so much for that and any kind of support you offer. We appreciate it. Without further ado, let's dive in. The man sitting across from me has a wild mane of hair, bushy eyebrows, and a Mark Twain mustache from before Mark Twain's hair turning white. And it's appropriate because this man is the counterculture's favorite humorist, the author of four or five novels that are whimsical science fiction. Uh, Kids in San Francisco walk around with his paperbacks stuck in their back pockets like Bibles. And it's fitting because he invented a church, uh, the Church of God, the Indifferent. And he had a mantra to get him through some of the worst episodes of human behavior. So it goes. I had admired his work and actually had written in my journal one of his sayings. We are what we pretend to be. So we must be careful what we pretend to be. I had changed it. When you steal from the best, change it. In my journal, it read, you are what you pretend to be, so be goddamn careful what you pretend to be. At that moment, I am pretending to be an editor for Psychology Today magazine. I'd been hired three months before, and uh, my editor thought it would make a great interview if a fan met the famous writer. He lived in New England, but we contacted him and said he was temporarily staying in Vancouver and he would welcome the distraction. I arrived. We sat down for dinner. He told me the situation. His son had suffered a nervous breakdown and committed himself to an asylum. This was going to be awkward. What the famous writer wanted me to tell him was what the current thinking on schizophrenia was. Since I was the same age as his son, what the drug experience was like. 
Psychology Today had not hired me for my knowledge of psychology. I was an English major. I liked language. But I had studied in college. I had taken abnormal psychology twice because it was the only course on campus that talked about sexuality. I had picked up other things. I tried to suggest to this man, I could feel his anguish and I was sinking into quicksand. But I said, the theories were in flux. It used to be that people thought schizophrenia was inherited. King George, whole families passed this down father to son. There were people who thought it was the family you were born into, that family had the power to tie your brain into knots. That had been discarded. There were now people suggesting that schizophrenia, uh, mental illness was a journey from which you could emerge with a new version of self. Certainly, there were movies celebrating that insanity was the logical choice in times of insanity. King of Hearts movie with Alan Bates and Genevieve Bouchot. Alan Bates plays a soldier fleeing from the madness of World War I. He hides in an asylum. Genevieve Bouchot thinks she's a circus performer who can walk tight ropes. And I said to him, if I could meet Genevieve Bouchot by checking into an asylum, I would, sinking deeper into the quicksand. When it came to discussing drug use, I don't discuss that with anyone, but I said, okay, his son's story was my story. We had both gone to small colleges in New England and upon graduation, climbed into a van and driven to California. We had embraced the counterculture. We had taken drugs. That was where the stories changed. So I told the famous writer my story. I never smoked marijuana because in an odd way, I believe the government theory that smoking marijuana would lead to heroin addiction. So I went right to psychedelics, better living through chemistry. Psychedelics were a kind of consensual psychosis. It altered your mind. Uh, I treated them with respect. It wasn't a light show for me. Uh, I would set aside a day for the trip and three days to regroup afterwards. I did not do the organic uh, hallucinogens. The idea of throwing up at the start of an evening did not appeal to me. I treated them with respect. The precipitating factor in his son is that he had taken a psychedelic, uh, mescaline or peyote, and had stayed up for 10 days straight without sleep. I knew about sleeplessness. I had actually edited a paper um, that discussed the effects of sleep deprivation. Teenage boy in a high school in New Jersey had done a science project on sleep deprivation and had gone without sleep for a week. And at the end of the week, this puny kid thought he was a 240 pound linebacker for the New York Giants. His teachers didn't know what to do because like the Giants were weak in that position. But sleep deprivation has the simplest cure on the planet, you go to sleep and you wake up better. With each of these confessions, my heart constricted. I said, I'm, am I helping? Am I hurting? And then the famous writer looked at the table. Uh, it was a 
expense account dinner. Uh, we had gone someplace French and we had ordered escargot, a six pack of slugs, a ceramic dish, a snail in each little pocket, a bowl of uh, garlic butter in the middle and a toothpick. And he said to me, I've never understood this dish because by the time you taste the garlic butter, you can't taste the escargot. And why should the snail have to give its life for the taste of garlic butter? Certainly someone could manufacture snail-shaped sponges on toothpicks that you would simply dip into the garlic butter, suck it off, and have the same experience without that cost. I wondered if he was talking about life, about brains. And then I realized I had witnessed what this man had done all of his life, to use humor to rise above the traumatic. The interview never saw print. This was not my story to tell, and I could not invade the son's privacy. The son actually turned out okay. He got out of the Institute and wrote a novel about going mad. That was quite funny. He had inherited his father gene for humor, and that was the gift. And I thought about it every year since. There's this problem that I have and it, uh, it's killing me. And I know that something needs to change. And so I do what a, a lot of people would do. And I get some help. And I go to a meeting, an AA meeting. This is a Monday evening in 2012. And when I pull in, I see this group of people standing outside the building. And they're smoking and they're talking. And I feel right at home because I like to do both of these things. I'm walking in and I ask one of the guys, is this the AA meeting? I've never been to an AA meeting, so this is not familiar territory. And he said, yeah, yeah, welcome, brother. So I say, yeah, thanks, you know, feels good. And uh, it's an open meeting, which means that I can just visit. There's absolutely no pressure. I don't have to say anything. I don't have to do anything. I can just listen, which is exactly what I do. Sit there and I listen. And this group of people, maybe 20, 25 people, they're all from my area, my community, and they're all alcoholics, or they wouldn't be here. And all of them are sharing. They're talking about hitting rock bottom, talking about struggle. Some of them are talking about recovery. And this is going on for like an hour or maybe more. And there is just something about these people sharing these stories. And so at the end of the meeting, they say, come back. And I do. And it's one week later, it's a Monday evening, and I'm, and I'm there, same place, same time. Mostly the same group of people and the same guy says, welcome, brother. And I hear more stories. And I'm thinking, I like this. This is a space where I could hang out. And when it's my turn that night, I decide to share. Even though it's an open meeting and I don't have to, I'm like, nah, I got to share something. So I say to them, I say, hey, you know, my name is Sean. And they say, hi, Sean. And I know the steps or I'm getting more familiar with the steps. And I, and I know that the first step, maybe the biggest step is like, you've got to say, I've got a problem and I don't have any power over this problem. And I want to say that. I want to say, like, I'm an alcoholic, but I also really want to be honest. I don't know if I'm an alcoholic and I don't want to say I'm an alcoholic if I don't think I'm an alcoholic. And I also know everyone there. They've heard that before. 
and they're thinking, yeah, sure, whatever, we, we get it. But I don't really believe it. But I also know that the other part of step one is to say that your life has become unmanageable. Not I can talk about. And everybody there is quiet. I mean, they are quiet. And I tell them, well, yeah, my life has been unmanageable. And I tell them how it began. And it was a few years earlier. I was living up in New York where I'm from. I was in Queens. And most nights I'd go to this Irish pub on the corner, right near the subway, the seven train. And I'd sit at the end of the bar and I'd order a pint, always a Guinness. But I'd always order one pint, not two. Like I had this control, but I'd go there like every night and I would chat with the bartender or these other patrons there. And I knew them, but not well. And I'd watch the ball game on TV or I'd read a magazine and I'd finish. I'd walk home a few blocks and I would be alone going home. And at this point, when I'm telling this group of my community in this AA meeting where things began to get unmanageable, I'm waiting for one of them to say something that makes me want to stop sharing or maybe walk out or even kind of like do this dramatic thing where I say, you know what? Go fuck yourself, because I'm really good at that. But they don't say a word. They're just listening. This room is quiet. And I just keep talking. And I tell them I moved to North Carolina in 2010. Now it's two years later. And it's the same story. I mean, the bar and the bartender are different. And the sports team on TV has changed. Same scene. Same story. And I say, look, guys, you know, look, I managed last time in New York. I got through it. But it's been like a few months here in North Carolina. And it's the same shit, man. I I don't drink typically more than one beer, but I go to this bar every night. And every night I walk home alone. And so I end what I share. I say, hey, thanks for listening, you know. And they that's what they did. They listen. And when I was finished, they didn't say all the stupid shit people say. They said, thank you. And I know they think I'm an alcoholic. I know it because they've heard this story over and over and over again, but not one of them says that to me. Now, what I don't tell them is that I had just learned that one of my close friends died from this seizure, a drug-related seizure. We don't know the the details, but I know that through a, a, a friend of his that he died alone in his bedroom and that his mom found him and that he was 30 years old. And he had been on and off of drugs for years. And when he was off drugs, he was in a 12-step program. So for me, going through this stuff again and hearing about my buddy Mike, it feels different. And it really feels like it's, I don't know, like it might be killing me. And I'm aware that something needs to change, but I'm just not quite sure what it is. But they say, keep coming back. But now I'm living in these two worlds. Because I go to these meetings on, uh, on Mondays. But I go to the bar the other nights. I typically sit at the end of the bar near the front window where it's like on the street. And I sit and I always look, wait, like I'm hoping that nobody from the group, I mean, they're all people in my community. I'm like, I'm hoping they're not walking by seeing me through the window. So the next Monday evening, I go back to the meeting and I don't say much because I'm feeling conflicted. And I just say my name and I say, thanks for letting me be here. And I listen as I always do. And after the meeting, some people are smoking outside and I join them. And, I, and one of this guy's name is Kenny comes up to me. He tells me the story that every new person, I'm sure they hear at some point, he tells me how he was like me. And he knew he had a problem. He realized he had a problem. He admitted it. And that was over 10 years ago. And it's been clean ever since. And he's got his life back and on and on and on. And I like Kenny. I like everybody here because they share and they say, thank you. And they seem to really give a shit. 
And that's not an easy place to find. But I also know that these meetings, even the open meetings, they're for addicts, alcoholics. And if you're not one of those, or you don't admit it, you're not really, well, you're no longer like a brother. And I still like going to that bar and drinking my beer. So uh, I say goodbye to Kenny and I drive away and I really do want to come back, but I don't. And, and like New York, I, I get a handle on the drinking again. So I'm okay. And I realize that I might be an alcoholic and I might not, I don't know. I may have a drinking problem, but what I realized, I mean, really became clear is that I do have this problem that is killing me. And as I, sit here today, eight years later, it remains in the middle of a pandemic at my kitchen table in my home alone. My problem is that I am lonely and something needs to change. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Mr. James Peterson in Chicago. Thank you, James. As always, check the show notes for upcoming events, including the 99-second Story Slam this Sunday and Deja True 4 the following Sunday. We really appreciate your support. If you could take a moment and rate and review this podcast, if you listen on Apple, that would be wonderful. Thank you. That is all for episode number 70. Boom.